Did you feel that they weren't taking your daughter's case seriously? Yes, I felt that way. I, I think that um, Jones thought he had solved the case by Brian, but um, but see, I have to admit to you that I thought it was Brian that did it because he knew that I did not want him with her. I always thought it was Brian until later that I started thinking it could have been someone else. What changed that for you or made you start thinking that was um, a possibility? I just thought that the whole case was one, it was pointing to one person. And I guess in some cases that's fantastic because that's who the person was. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I, um, like this Gilly guy. Brian. I don't know why you didn't come home last night, and I don't care. You have plenty of other girls you can dick around. It's not going to be me anymore. I thought you really loved me, but I looked around and I see that you love a lot of other girls also. You've got plenty to choose from. I hope you treat them better. I woke up at 6 a.m. and you're not even here. I went looking for you and I don't even know where to look. What the fuck do I look like to you? I'm not stupid. I can't put up with this shit. If you ever change, or should I say grow up, give me a call. See ya, Lisa. Lisa Beckel had only been dating Brian for about three weeks, but it's clear that she spent the last few days of her life either staying the night at his apartment while he avoided coming home, or looking for him all over town. I want to be perfectly clear about something right off the bat. I think Brian was a really shitty boyfriend. I think he used women, bounced from girl to girl, Stayed with one for a while, and when he had outworn his welcome, moved on to the next. Back in the olden days, as the kids say, they would call his kind a cad, a scoundrel. And I won't even get into my thoughts on a 30-year-old man seeking the attention of an 18-year-old girl who just graduated from high school. There is something inherently icky about that, and if you don't feel that way, you've likely never had girl children. At that age, the difference in maturity levels is vast although I don't think I would have described Brian as mature. These days, Brian would be called a player, and I don't necessarily have a problem with that, so long as you don't have a problem recognizing that we, as a society, don't look at men who have multiple sex partners in the same way as we do women who do the same thing. With men, we say, oh yeah, mm-hmm, boy, get some. With women, she's called a whore. Now, as I clamber down off my soapbox, I want to also mention that I spoke to one of Brian's exes, and I read from the police reports interviews with a few of his former female friends and girlfriends. Two of them said that he liked to rip clothing off during sex, and that he liked it a little rough, essentially. But nothing criminal, and not a single one said he was violent, even the ones who had nothing but bad things to say about him. They essentially painted him as a user and a mental abuser. And I'm sure police picked up on that early on, and that was one of the reasons they looked at him so hard. And they did look at him hard. In fact, I would say they looked at Brian almost to the exclusion of everyone else. Nobody was looked at as deeply and for as long as Brian was. What I did to try to figure out if Brian could have done something to Lisa is I went through every witness statement and handwritten note in the police report. And then I prepared a timeline of Lisa's whereabouts that Friday 
and I did the same for Brian, and then I compared the two. Thursday at around 10.30 in the morning, she had lunch with a friend, a guy named Jeff Arnold, who she used to date. She mentioned to him about being upset with Brian because he had not come home a couple of nights that week. And then Lisa admitted to Jeff that she was using Brian to get away from home, even though she cared for Brian and was going to see how it worked out. The other troubling thing that Lisa shared with Jeff was that within the last couple of days, she had been followed by a male in a truck while she was driving her car. The driver had attempted to get her to pull over, and she didn't. The note in the report saying that it was a white male in the truck suggests that she did at least get a look at that person who was following her. And I want to clarify here, because some of the interviews that I had done might make it seem like this was a male in a white truck. Now, in this statement of Jeff's, which is the only statement about this person following Lisa leading up to that Friday, it does not say that that person was following her in a white truck. It says she told Jeff a white male was following her in a truck. No color of truck was listed in that report. I did try, but was unable to get a hold of Jeff to ask if he recalled Lisa telling him this, but it does bear mentioning that this could be an entirely unrelated person to the man in the white truck that she met on Friday night at Rossi Park, because the only time a white truck is mentioned is in relation to that unknown male. Lisa spent this Thursday night at Brian's place again, and he never came home again. Now let's talk about Friday, what Lisa was doing and what Brian was doing. On Friday, the activity in and around the apartment where Brian was staying is helpful to understand both Lisa and Brian's whereabouts. Around one that afternoon, Danny Holland stopped by the apartments to retrieve a tool that he had left. As he was leaving, Lisa pulled into the parking lot. She looked around, she waved at him, and then she left. So it's clear that Lisa's there searching for Brian and not seeing the vehicle that he drove, that 1974 four-door Ford Galaxy, on loan to him by Dave, his roommate, Lisa then drives off. About an hour later, around 2 o'clock, William Paul Watson, a schoolmate who worked at the Bradenton Yacht Club, saw Lisa riding her bike across from Sutton Park on 10th Avenue in Palmetto. They spoke briefly. Lisa told him she'd been staying with Brian and about how he worked at the Southern Comfort Saloon and that she was upset with him because he hadn't come home the night before. She even mentioned her mom threatening to call police to get her to come home. She told Watson that she was riding her bike because she was upset and she needed to think. Around 3 p.m., George saw Lisa standing in the street near the Cruise Inn in Palmetto. This was a restaurant where she had worked in the past with her friend Buffy. Lisa and George spoke for a couple minutes. Between 3 and 4 p.m., a friend of Brian's named Jean says that Brian leaves to go to the Bradenton Shell Station to pick up his paycheck. It's likely that sometime just before this, Brian stopped at the home of another friend, a female, and he told her that if Lisa came by, tell her he had spent the night there. Essentially, he wanted this friend to lie for him. He said, just tell her to wait for me at home. And so that's what this female friend did when Lisa showed up at her place around 4.30 or so, and this gal lived in Bradenton, which is the same area where Lisa next went around 5 p.m. to the Shell Station to talk to Dave Hammond, Brian's roommate. This would be the time that she learned that she didn't have to babysit that night. So around 5 o'clock, just before closing, according to Dave, is when Lisa's plans would have changed. 
She's seen around this time by Bill Applegate and another friend around 5 p.m. on the Green Bridge, which connects Bradenton to Palmetto. Lisa passed them and honked, headed toward Bradenton at that time, so perhaps on her way to that shell station and Brian's friend's house. Now around this same time, Nancy Holland was at the apartments where Brian had been staying with David, and David was in the process of moving out of that apartment and moving his things from the downstairs apartment to another apartment upstairs. David himself got home shortly thereafter, sometime after 5 p.m. Around 5.30 or 6, Lisa is seen by Tammy Metz driving north on 10th Avenue West in Palmetto. She stopped and told Tammy she was going home to change clothes, and Damon Finley told me he remembers Lisa at that time asking if they had seen her friend Patty. While the exact time is unknown, given that we know Lisa thought she was babysitting until around 5 p.m. that day, it would have been between 5 p.m. and 6 p.m. that she ran into this unknown male in the truck at that stoplight in Bradenton and made plans to meet him that night at 7.30 at Riverfront Park, also known as Rossi Park. Because by around 6 p.m., Lisa calls her friend Susie and tells her that she'd run into a guy at a stoplight and they were going to meet tonight. He's going to get a bottle and we're going to get fucked up. The name that Susie told police she remembered Lisa saying in that conversation was Keith. Then at about 7.10 or 7.15, Lisa showed up at Susie's house, and Susie tries to talk her into going with them, to no avail. Lisa says she's headed to meet the guy at the park at 7.30. At this same time that Lisa is headed over to Rossi Park on the riverfront to meet this unknown man, Brian arrives at the apartment Danny Holland was there installing flooring upstairs. Nancy was hanging blinds. Brian would later tell police he had spent most of the day at Vicky's house, and we know he picked up his paycheck, and we also know, according to Beverly, the barmaid at the Southern Comfort, that she saw him at the back door lounge, drinking late that afternoon, which tracks because by the time Brian arrived, between 7.30 and 8 at the apartment, everyone present said that he had clearly been drinking. He stayed about 30 minutes in the upstairs apartment watching Nancy hang those blinds. Dave's friend Tina showed up around 8, and she's the one who was supposed to have brought her child with her that Lisa was going to babysit, but the child had a cold and couldn't come. By this point, Brian was getting obnoxiously drunk, according to all present, and frankly, they were all wishing that he would leave. He finally went downstairs to get ready for work around 8.30, according to them. When they left at 8.45, Brian was at the back door with the dog that he was keeping for a friend who was having her house fumigated. Now, there are discrepancies about what time Brian actually arrived for work. The detective told one witness he believed he arrived sometime after 8.30, closer to 9. Another witness would say she thought it was around 9.45, although this would have been years later. But what is clear is that at the time the three of them left Brian at the apartment with the dog, it is likely that Lisa had already been picked up from Rossi Park. She was supposed to meet him at 7.30. Mr. Oliver, the witness, said that she waited quite a while, an estimated 45 minutes. So that brings us to 8.15 or so. Even if we estimate an hour, Brian would still have been at the apartments where he was seen by multiple people when Lisa left that park with the unknown male. So there is no evidence to suggest that he ever ran into Lisa that day, despite how much time she spent looking for him. It seems clear to me that that's how he wanted it. Brian had been actively avoiding her all day. He had been telling her to wait for him at his apartment, knowing he was never going to show up there. 
And to me, if he's avoiding her, that makes sense. If he knew she was there, it would be easier for him to avoid her in such a small town. For the rest of the night and the next day, and night, Brian's whereabouts are well accounted for. He worked all night, and then after his shift, he headed out to the home of a fellow bouncer named Big Jim, and there was a party that went on all weekend. He slept at a friend's place that night, and then the next day went to work and did it all again. There were also people at the party that confirmed that Brian was there, and there were no credible sightings of Lisa at that party. While there were numerous reasons why it was understandable that Brian was looked into as hard as he was by police, in the end, I worried that other suspects could have been overlooked or easily dismissed due to most of the attention being focused on him. Not only does the timeline not really work, but the witness, Mr. Oliver, who saw Lisa get into the truck with the man at the park, was shown Brian's picture, and he said it wasn't him. The man in the truck had lighter hair. He was also shown a picture of Brian's roommate's white truck, the only white truck that Brian would have had access to. And this witness also said that that truck appeared different than the one that Lisa left the park in. It's interesting that for all of Lisa's hunting for Brian that day, she did not go up to the bar that night, the one place that she knew that he would be. Not a single employee or patron said they saw Lisa come up to the bar that night. This tells me that by the time Brian was scheduled to be at work, Lisa was no longer looking for him, or she was otherwise engaged. For his part, every one of Brian's actions suggests that he was blowing her off, and he said as much in his police interview. They asked him why he wasn't going home to the apartment when he knew she was going to be there all of those days that week. I was just kind of blowing her off, you know. I have a hard time breaking up with girls, and I'd just rather them get mad at me. Were you breaking up with Lisa? The investigator asked. Well, yeah, kinda. Did she know that? They asked him. His response? No. So if we're looking at persons of interest, now let's talk about Kyle Gilly. I, um, like this Gilly guy. He lives out, he lives out, he lived out on uh, Allenton Gillette Road, which is real close to where I live. Not on Allenton Gillette Road, but in the vicinity of, and um, I she never I don't think she ever talked to me about this Gilly guy but um, I think he frequented probably Winn-Dixie for his groceries and things like that and probably came in contact with Lisa mm -hmm. um, and also um, I, did, I know that um, oh I can't think of his name Michael Jacks Michael Jackson. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I did. I was forwarded that an email that had that he had sent to someone else. He did another person that took really great notes and basically outlined this is why I think they should at least look at him. And it did say that he believed Lisa had come to a party with. Um, they they were at the same party like I don't know three months before your daughter died, and so. If, if I'm reading that right, I need to go back and look at it a bit. But police should have looked at him. You're absolutely right. You you look at people who could have been, at least they may not have known that then, but once he was arrested for another crime, 
um, what had, which had some similar features, of course they should have looked at him. And so you're not even under, you don't know that they even looked at him at all? No, I don't. I kept calling and I talked to a lady would answer the phone. And I, I talked, I think, one time to the um, investigator or the person assigned to the case. Um, like one time, and he was going to call me back. And every time I called, he wasn't there. He was on vacation. He was not at his desk. Um, but the lady would talk to me. Um, and she did tell me one thing. And I think I put it in my answers to you on your questions that um, he, um, she said that they did find a cigarette out there that had Lisa's um, identification on it or what do you call it? DNA. DNA. Mm -hmm. DNA. And also um, someone else's DNA on it. But... And they were gonna, I said, well, they're gonna investigate that, aren't they? And she said, well, yes, but she said, we are so backed up with work. And she said, I don't know how soon they'll be able to do that. Well, then they must have closed that case out. I don't know when they closed it out, but they promised me they wouldn't as long as I was working on it. But, you know, as time went on year after year, um, it, it just um, got overwhelming to me and I had to let go. Yeah, I had to let it let it go because I couldn't afford to hire a detective to to search it out, and I thought Manatee County would be on it and get the answers for me, but they didn't. So, when was the last time you spoke with anyone about this case at Manatee County? Well, the last time I spoke to the woman, and I have in my notes somewhere her name, but I cannot tell you what it is right now because I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, the lady that I was speaking to there, that worked there, she, she was telling me the last time I talked to her about that cigarette. And I said, well, I sure hope they're going to have it checked. And I said, he's in prison. And and they were going to try to get up there, she said, and, and talk to him. But she said that, you know, don't get your hopes up because... Um, Who's in prison? Uh, Gilly. Oh, they were going to talk to Gilly, too. So that was two things you learned that day. They were going to try to talk to Gilly, and then that there was two two contributors to a cigarette butt that, that was found there at the scene. But th she didn't say that this the, Gilly was the contributor on the cigarette butt, correct? No, she did not say okay. that. Okay, okay. Um, but, but Lisa's was on there. But anyhow, I did. I called her several times because she would talk to me. I think she was sympathetic. She, you know, she knew that I was upset about not having answers. Mm -hmm. They have, after a certain point, they just did not bother to call me or, you know, I didn't hear a word from them. They were hoping that they wouldn't hear a word from me, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, yeah. But, um, but anyhow, um, they, they had stuff that they could do. And I know that Manatee County has lots of things that work for the Sheriff's Department to do. I understand that. But this is, she deserves, I deserve yes. answers for one thing, but my daughter's name needs to be, it needs to have some pride or something that at least they're working on her case. They're working on things like that that they should have worked on. 
without anybody telling them that they need to do this or need to do that. Somebody left her there. Somebody took her there and somebody left her there. And whether that's homicide or not, it's the job of law enforcement to find that out. Jenny, her clothes were ripped. Right, right. It's ripped off of her. Her arm had needle point marks in it. Kyle's name came up to me when I received an email from a friend of a guy named Michael Jacks. His friend forwarded me an email that Michael had sent to her, outlining why he thought a man named Kyle Gilly needed to be looked at in Lisa Beckel's death case. The first thing he noted is that Kyle Gilly was convicted in Tennessee for the 1984 first-degree murder of Laura Salmon. That conviction, however, didn't occur until 17 years after the murder. By that time, Rutherford County Sheriff's detectives had tracked him down to Florida, where he was arrested and charged with her murder. In 2006, Kyle Gilley was convicted of first-degree murder and received a life sentence that he has tried to appeal on numerous occasions without success. Given that he had those 17 years to run around and do God knows what else, it stands to reason that Michael Jacks might think law enforcement should check into Kyle Gilley for Lisa's death, and that's because Kyle worked in Manatee County in the Public Works Department. Michael Jacks alleged that in March of 1990, while he was home for spring break, he went to a party at his brother's house in Palmetto Point in Manatee County. He said Kyle Gilley came to that party with Lisa, and based on details from that letter, I am convinced that he would not mistake her for someone else. Now, this sighting of Lisa with Kyle at that party would have occurred only three months prior to her death. So it seems as though law enforcement should at least take a little visit to the prison where he now resides for the foreseeable forever and have a little chit-chat with him, if they haven't already. Forensic Files did an episode on the murder of Laura Salmon, the former girlfriend of Kyle Gilley, and if you're interested in watching it, you can find it on YouTube. It is Season 12, Episode 20, and the episode is called Gene Pool. I can see why Michael thought that Kyle Gilly bears looking into. There are some similarities. Laura Salmon's body was found at a rock quarry, an area that was known to be a lover's lane, party-type area. Not only does Lisa bear some resemblance to Laura, but they were both grocery store cashiers. Both Laura and Lisa were found wearing only their bra, and the vehicles of both girls were found in different areas than their bodies. Laura Salmon was not sexually assaulted, and there is no evidence to indicate that Lisa was either. Michael said that he spoke with other girls Kyle had dated in Manatee County, and was told that Kyle was very jealous and possessive, and would follow them around after the relationship ended, just like he had done with Laura Salmon. One major difference in Laura Salmon's case with Lisa's, as with the next similar case that I will outline, is that Laura had blunt force injuries. Kyle was known to be violent physically with previous girlfriends and with Laura. He would hit them, and her injuries reflected that. Lisa Beckel had no violent injuries like that. Michael Jacks is now deceased, but I want to give him a posthumous shout-out because he laid out the facts in that email from his own research that allowed me to directly relate them back to you, having only had to fact-check his assertions. It is my hope that law enforcement either has or can in the future get a buckle swab from Kyle Gilley and test his DNA against the DNA found on that cigarette butt that's associated with Lisa's case. It is, however, unclear to me if they do in fact have enough DNA from the minor contributor to make a comparison. 
Now, in my own research, I found one other individual that I believe law enforcement should have checked into, although again, the attack against that female left her with more physical injuries on her body than Lisa Beckel had. On the night of December 17, 1980, Deborah Lee Reichert was walking home from babysitting. A man in a white 1977-1979 Ford pickup truck pulled up beside her in the 700 block of 8th Avenue West in Palmetto. She accepted a ride with the man, and he drove on, and then, at some point, abruptly grabbed her. Due to problems with the handling of that investigation, there are a great many details that would later become problematic. The Miami Herald did an expose on that case, leaning heavily into the idea that there had been a faulty conviction of Johnny Barnes, who was said to have been the perpetrator. He was initially convicted and given 50 years, the judge later cut that sentence down dramatically and he got out of prison in 1986. I might not have even mentioned him had he not been arrested again in 1992 for a very similar crime, kidnapping and rape. That second case was eventually dropped due to the prosecutor not having enough credible evidence. While these two crimes contained an amount of violence that are not present in Lisa Beckel's case, there are also some similarities in this case that are not easily overlooked. The white Ford truck, the perpetrator's physical description. In Deborah's 1980 case, it was a white male, 26 to 27, 5759, sandy blonde hair, mustache a shade darker than his hair. And 10 years later in Lisa's case, the witness described the perpetrator as 28 to 32 years with sandy blonde hair and a mustache. Johnny Barnes would have been 34 to 35 at the time that Lisa Beckel died, which is two years older than the high range of 32 given in Lisa's case, but that's certainly close enough to look into. Both women were taken to remote locations. In Deborah's case, she said the man made her take off her pants, her underwear, and her shoes. Lisa was found wearing nothing but a bra tangled around her shoulders in a body of water. In one of Deborah's initial statements, she said she had fallen into a canal yet police were searching an orange grove. Deborah said that it was police who told her the area, and it wasn't the other way around. That seems to be supported by a quote that was made in the newspaper by Corporal Bill Wooten. That's Rape City out there. The minute we get a rape that supposedly occurred in the North End, we always go out to those orange groves. Deborah said her earrings were lost or torn off during the struggle. Lisa was also missing her earrings and only one was ever found. In Deborah's case, police never found those earrings, nor were there any bare footprints found at the scene where police said they thought Deborah had been, although the hospital noted in their reports that her feet were dirty, so she had been barefoot. I think police should have at least looked at this individual. He had been released in 86, so he was out of prison when Lisa Beckel died in 1990. I did send a records request to try to get the police documents on this case, but because this was a sexual assault, due to privacy requirements, they do not release those documents. So I had no way to go through the original police reports to see if there were any other similarities. Now I want to look specific to Lisa's case file. In addition to looking at Brian, the boyfriend, police did polygraph a few individuals. One was a female related to Brian's alibi. They said that she failed the polygraph and the questions they were asking her were about what time he arrived at work. 
I don't think she ever knew for sure what time he arrived. I think she knew what time he was scheduled to arrive, and so that's the time she gave them. That doesn't mean that she lied, and it certainly doesn't mean that she had something to do with or knew anything related to Lisa Beckel's death. And that is one indication to me that you have to be really careful about polygraph results because sometimes you will get deceptive results and there's a reason for that, which doesn't involve the person taking the test knowing anything related to a homicide or another crime. Another individual who was polygraphed was a guy named George who had seen her earlier that day by the cruise inn. He said he and Lisa had spoken briefly that day and he would tell police that he had been out at Emerson Point that night, but he had not seen Lisa there. Not a single person saw Lisa out at Emerson Point that night. George did, however, initially lie to police about his relationship with Lisa. When they asked him if they'd ever had sex, he said no. He also said he had never provided her marijuana, which was also a lie. Police called his bluff. They set him up for a polygraph, and he showed up and immediately before they strapped him to the test, told them that he needed to come clean. Yes, he had had sex with her once, and yes, he had provided her with marijuana. But that's it. He passed his polygraph after that. I reached out to George directly by Facebook Messenger because I believe in giving people the chance to respond when other people come to me, invoking their names, which happened a couple times related to George. I told him that multiple people had come to me to say that the rumor was, let's put a heavy line under rumor, that he had more of a relationship with Lisa than he had told police. He repeated to me what he had told police, that he had only been with her once. I'm going to give him credit for answering those initial questions, although I admit I gave him the side eye initially when I introduced myself via Facebook Messenger with my standard spiel about covering the case and giving him Lisa's name. His very first response was this, quote, I've lived here all my life, but I'm not picturing who this Lisa is. Let me know who she is and maybe I can help you. Sorry. I then sent him her senior picture, and I told him that his name was mentioned in the police report. He responded, Yeah, we went out a couple times, but that shit was a long time ago. It was nothing really serious, like maybe two times we went out. She was a good person. He told me that his little brother Joe knew Lisa, and that's how they'd met. She would give Joe rides to school and George told me that he was the weed man, and she liked smoking weed, so they had smoked together, and on one occasion they had had sex. He also admitted to having an old, beat-up white truck at the time. He expressed how he felt bad about what happened to her, and then went on to answer other questions like why he lied to police. Who willingly tells them they're the local weed dealer, he said to me. I did chuckle at that. Fair enough. And here's the thing. George was out at Emerson Point that night, by his own admission. So if he was there with Lisa, I would assume that would have been something other people down there would have noticed. Nobody did. Nobody put the two of them together that night. I assume that's why police would have, essentially, set his name aside. Not necessarily checked it off, because you can't rule anyone out until you know what happened. And here we don't even know what happened. So they would set it aside like they would set Brian's name aside, unless or until they could come up with credible evidence that either one of them had come in contact with Lisa that night. They never did. And this brings us to the other individual that police polygraphed. Keith Smith, Lisa's cousin, 
who found her clothing on Sneed Island. I want to say right off the bat, he also passed the polygraph. From my perspective, if Keith had come into contact with Indian Joe that day and been told by him where he had found Lisa's wallet, I wouldn't have blinked, personally. But he didn't. That wallet was found two-tenths of a mile east of the area where they found the clothing. Had he known where the wallet was, it would make sense to me that he would walk into the woods in that specific area where they were located and start looking there. But that's not what Keith told police he did. He told them he got off work around 2, he got down to Sneed Island around 3, and he started at the tip, down at Emerson Point. That is a lot of ground to cover, and then you've got both sides of the road, because you don't know where she is. All you know is that a wallet was found down there. So you've got to check both sides of the road, all the way up the road, east, to where the clothing was eventually found. He didn't say he did that. His statement summary, which is glaringly insufficient, and that is not his fault, that would be the fault of whoever took that statement. In my opinion, it's glaringly insufficient, and it says this. Keith Smith stated that he responded to an area of Emerson Point to locate one Indian Joe. Smith stated that Indian Joe had found a wallet belonging to the victim, and he was attempting to locate Indian Joe for further information and help in locating the victim. Smith stated he went back to the water and found victim's clothing and earring. He removed clothing and called MSO. There's no indication that Indian Joe was even down at Emerson Point to show the family where he had found the wallet, and that would be the only thing that would lead them to that specific area to concentrate their search there. Unless, of course, they had information that Lisa would frequent that area, or they themselves had frequented it and would know about it. Susie told me that she didn't see Indian Joe down there when she arrived, and she was there when the clothing was found. It was there that she gave police her information and then identified the clothing and earring, as she was the only person there at the scene who would have been able to identify those clothes, because she was the last person to see Lisa that night. Now, the same officer that took Keith's information took Susie's. Her statement reads as follows. Stated she last saw the victim at a residence at approximately 7.30 on 6.15.1990. Stated victim was going to meet a white male, Keith, at the Riverfront Park in Bradenton. Victim stated she met white male at a stoplight in Bradenton. Victim last seen wearing black skirt, white and black top, and black canvas shoes. Wearing large black earrings. I'll note here that the shoes that they found were white, not black. So given the information that police almost immediately had, it is understandable why they would focus on Keith and give him a polygraph. He matches the physical description of the male seen picking Lisa up at Riverfront Park. His name is Keith. His family had a white truck that the boys drove for their landscaping business. What's most concerning to me is that there is nowhere in the report that shows police verified his whereabouts the previous night nor did they go out to the scene later and have him recreate his search from the moment he arrived, or even took a taped statement from him or anyone else who had searched that day to document exactly what was searched. They would need to do that for a variety of reasons, including the fact that they still had items that were not found, a purse, keys. They did ask Keith a series of questions before and during the polygraph and he stated that he had not been at Emerson Point on the night of June 15th or 16th and denied knowing who Lisa was with when she drowned. And here is the most important thing to remember. 
For Keith to have been the person who picked up Lisa at Rossi Park, Lisa would have had to lie to her friend Susie when she suggested that the person she had been headed to meet was someone she had only just met at a stoplight in Bradenton a couple hours earlier. That is the impression that Susie got. Susie had never met Keith up until that point when she went to Sneed Island that day to help look for Lisa when her clothing was found. So if I'm trying to envision a scenario where Lisa's cousin Keith is the person that she was with that night, it would have to go something like this. Lisa ran into him that day at a stoplight around 5 or 6, and she said, let's meet up at 7.30. And then she could have lied about this Keith being her cousin to Susie because she didn't want it getting back to her mother that her cousin was supplying her with alcohol or possibly drugs. Lisa had already told Susie in the first conversation that the guy she was meeting with was going to get a bottle and they were going to get fucked up. Now, when I first looked at this, I thought, well, maybe she said, I'm meeting someone I just ran into, not just met, not have never met before. I just ran into at a stoplight. There's a, a, a wide difference, a vast difference in the wording there. Yes. But Susie seems convinced that it was based on her questioning her. Why are you meeting someone that you just, why are you going out with someone you just met? Susie was left with the impression it was someone she just met. But if Lisa wasn't telling her it was someone that she hadn't just met, if she was just leaving that out, um, then we don't. It could have been someone that she knew already. You know, it could have been, that would have been the situation with Kyle. If, if she had already gone on one date with Kyle and, um, you know, at that party, if she'd been out with him and met him before, Kyle wasn't new to her either. Wasn't a new individual, Kyle Gilly. So if he was the perpetrator, she would have known him too. All of these people she would have already known, except some unknown person that she just met. Right. That had been stalking her. Every other person she would have known already, whether it's her cousin, whether it's her uh, Brian, whether it's Kyle Gilly, whether it's any of them, she knew all these people already, so she wouldn't be telling her friend it was someone she just met. Now, again, maybe that was a misunderstanding. Maybe she just ran into somebody and she just wasn't sharing the full thing. But you'd think if her friend is questioning her, Lisa, I'm nervous about this. Don't meet someone that you just met. If it wasn't someone she just met, she would have said, oh, I know him, you know, to, just to, to make her friend feel better. I know who, I know him. It's, you know. She didn't do that, and I think she would have with her friend. I would have think, thought she would have done that to ease her friend's mind, like she would have done it with you to ease your mind, if that, in fact, were the case. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, so if we go by Lisa telling the truth that it's someone that she had just met, this is someone that none of us know yet. This is a name we don't even know. Well, it's pretty large, at least. Is just crazy? Yeah. Say that it, I'm sorry, I didn't hear him. What did he say? Yes, and that was my question. It's a possible, and, and that's whenever in the beginning of our conversation, I told you that I, I feel like Lisa was someone that would compartmentalize. And so it is possible that she could have lied to Susie, but it's, we don't know. There are so many possibilities here that we just, we have to remain op open-minded and we can't get, so focused on it has to be this person because we don't have all these answers. The big question to questions that I would like answers to are they going to test the cigarette butt and would they go and, and test other people against it, it, you have to understand that if to do that they would have to feel there was some benefit to doing that meaning they would have to think either they would put it into CODIS and get a match 
that's not as likely unless the person has done a crime before. But if you have people that you are looking at in your in your on your list, then you have to it, not only be willing to do the testing, but be willing to go collect buckle swabs and test these persons of interest against that sample. The other thing that occurred during my research that concerned me in Keith's regard was something I was told by a family member who reached out to me and did not want me to use their name. I had a few distant family relatives reach out, actually, but one of them said one thing that, even as a layperson, stood out. This is exactly what they said. I was told it was a weird situation that when her clothes were found, he walked right over to them like he knew where they were and her body was not there at the time. The reason this stands out to me is twofold. First, based on my read of the report and the statements that Keith gave to police, that is essentially what happened. In the handwritten notes of the detective who spoke with Keith the month after the incident, it reads, quote, Worked Saturday, 8.30, late. Off 2 o'clock. To home. Left at 3 to find Lisa and Indian Joe. Went to End Island, around End, stopped and went into where clothing were, walked to close, found. Additionally, in this note, when Keith was asked by law enforcement about Lisa's substance abuse, it reads, quote, Saw her drinking several times, not a lot, marijuana a few times, crack several. Lisa's clothes were not found anywhere near the end of Sneed Island at Emerson Point. They were found about a mile down that road. If Keith started at that point, as his statement says, quite a bit of searching would have had to have happened before he walked into the woods at the area where her clothing was located. But I am particularly concerned about him saying that he was aware that Lisa had done crack because not a single person that I spoke to knew her to do anything but drink and smoke pot. But Keith himself had had an arrest for rock cocaine a few years later. Once I learned that, my question would be whether he knew she had done crack cocaine because he had provided it to her. Otherwise, we would have to believe that Lisa had done crack cocaine at some point and then mentioned it to her cousin, who was seemingly unconcerned, apparently, with making anyone else in the family aware of that type of drug escalation. And I'm going to be honest, it left me wondering if Keith was telling the truth about Lisa using crack. The second thing in that earlier statement from the family member that disturbed me was when they said, I was told it was a weird situation that when her clothes were found, he walked right over to them like he knew where they were and her body was not there at the time. Lisa's body was not there at the time, or at least it wasn't spotted. That Saturday when her clothing was found, police had even done searches across that lagoon and not spotted her body. Yet she was found the very next morning visible on the shoreline across the lagoon from the scene at the water's edge under some tree limbs. Now, without getting too graphic, due to decomposition and the buildup of gases in the body, it is possible that her body wasn't seen on Saturday because it wasn't there Saturday, but that it floated up sometime overnight into that area and got snagged on those tree limbs. But the fact that that statement from the family member included that that the body wasn't there at the time, it gave me a sense that whoever told this person that perceived the situation to be concerning as it had played out in real time. It grounds that statement in what appears to be fact because her body was not seen there at the time, on that Saturday when her clothing was found. And remember, the general public only knows 
what is basically being reported on in the paper, and none of that was reported in the paper. The general public wouldn't have known that timeline of events, the finding of the clothing, and then the body the day after. And I know that because the people I spoke with didn't really understand the timeline at all. But family did, specifically family who was there. Now, having said all of that and outlined those facts, I want to be clear. I am not saying that Keith Smith did something to his cousin. I don't know what happened to Lisa Beckel that night. And in the next and final episode, I'm going to go over several possible scenarios. But I am concerned that based on how that clothing was found, there is at least a possibility that Keith Smith could have had more information than what he told police. Unfortunately, Keith Smith is now deceased, so we can't ask him. Stay tuned.